Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Gary Antonacci, Principal at Portfolio Management Consultants, founder of the Optimal Momentum Investing website and the Dual Momentum blog, and author of the book, Dual Momentum Investing, an innovative strategy for higher returns with lower risk. We talk with Gary about momentum investing and specifically his focus on the concept of dual momentum investing, which combines relative momentum and absolute momentum together in one systematic approach. We talk with Gary about how dual momentum can be used on other asset classes and what some of his momentum research shows when applied to an asset like Bitcoin. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Gary Antonacci. Gary, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Today, we're going to talk about dual momentum investing, the concept that you developed and explained in your book, Dual Momentum Investing, an innovative strategy for higher returns and lower risk. I think it's going to make for an interesting conversation, just given some of the things we're seeing in the markets right now, um, with the recent declines and the changes in leadership we're seeing, um, among stocks, uh, so far this year. But before we, um, get into that, I wanted to talk, um, or, uh, sort of get into some of the other things maybe you've done outside of investing, which we found very interesting as we were doing some research on you for this interview. And one of the things that you had done. Um, is you were at one point a blending, I guess, comedy and magic together, um, and doing performances of that. So I wanted to start, maybe I thought it'd be fun just to hear about, you know, what you were doing when you were pursuing that, uh, that interest and maybe what your favorite trick was, if you want to share that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, uh, during the 1980s, I was running some hedge funds and, uh, I had this idea of using modern portfolio theory to combine together the best uh, commodity traders I could find. So I work with people like Paul Tudor Jones, um, Monroe Trout, uh, Bruce Bacon, Richard Dennis, John Henry, and did very, very well. So uh, a brokerage firm came along and bought me out. And uh, then I had to figure out what to do, you know, when I grew up. So I just, was taking a little time off and I went to a Cub Scout meeting with my son and there was a magician performer. I thought I could do that because I used to do magic when I was a kid. So I, I just started working on it and I like to combine some of the funny things with it. And it was a stretch for me because I'm naturally, I like challenges. And, um, I decided to go over to the Holy city zoo and, uh, start working on developing an act. That's how a lot of people got started. And, um, I got to be, uh, successful at it. I was getting bookings, uh, Margaret show and I started together and we would substitute for each other. And then I started getting bookings all over the country, Canada. Uh, so it was a lot of fun. I think I was the only performer to ever be thrown out of the comedy store. So it was a, an interesting experience. Uh, we are getting booted out of the comments or maybe that's a conversation for, for another day, but I, I gotta tell you the, uh, 
for my eight-year-old uh, birthday, my, my little girl this year, I got her, I booked a guy that did magic and comedy for kids. And I think those, I had, I don't know, like eight, eight or 10 little girls at my house and they all left there saying that was the best birthday party I've ever been at. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, actually my favorite trick is why I got wood. Oh, well, it, well then there, it involved we, we, a, it involved a mouse and a blender. That's about all. Oh, 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 okay. <laughs> and hopefully, uh, the, nothing got, no drinks got made out of the, uh, the blender. Well, I gave the impression uh, the opposite, but in fact, I came up with that for an SBCA benefit show at the Holy City Zoo and nobody laughed. So I had to expose the trick. At the comedy store, before I could finish, Mitzi Shore yells, who's the owner, yelled from the back in him. These two large gentlemen escorted. Oh my gosh. We were talking before we jumped on, um, about Harvard business school a little bit and, um, uh, our co-founder of Olivia, John Reese went to Har Harvard business school. There was some overlap in terms of the timing you were, you were there. You guys don't know each other, but, um, is I wanted to ask, is that where you first got interested in momentum investing or was it actually be before Harvard, can you kind of walk us through how you got into momentum investing to begin with? Well, I, I started my career uh, with Merrill Lynch before I went to Harvard and um, I tried to read everything I could about investing. I wanted to come up with something a little different. So, you know, Lefty Grove said uh, he was successful because he hit him where they ain't. So I was looking for different things to do. And that's when I came across relative strength. Uh, uh, Bob Levy wrote a book about it. And uh, uh, Nick Darvis had something that was rotational type investment strategy. So I was always impressed by that, but I actually focused on stock options and started managing money on the side it's at Harvard. I didn't have to look for a job after I just continued one of my classmates there. I want to ask you, um, as we sort of work into your dual momentum system, I first want to ask you about momentum in general. You know, one of the challenges we have talking to investors about momentum is investors always want to see some sort of fundamental underpinning for what they're doing, whether it's value or growth or, or something tied to the fundamentals and momentum really doesn't have that tie in. So I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about what you think the best explanation is for why momentum works. Well, momentum, like, like all, uh, trend type approaches actually does have that information, but it's reflected in the price that, that really reflects uh, all the information that people have. So, uh, the reason it works, I think, uh, is behavioral. Uh, you've got a lot of different things going on there. First is anchoring or conservatism. People just don't, uh, accept what, what starts to happen uh, right away. And that's uh, influenced also by the disposition effect. People have a tendency to want to get rid of their uh, winners too soon, hold on to their losers. Well, that also applies when you're getting into positions. You tend to be skeptical to go up. And but what has to happen though is price has to catch up at some point. You know, if markets are all vicious, and when that happens, then uh, the, the other side takes over, which is our hurting of recency bias. And that's, that's what makes it work. 
One of the interesting things about your system is that it uses both time series and cross-sectional momentum. I was wondering if maybe you could just define those two terms and then talk about what gave you the idea to combine both of them together into one system. Well, cross-sectional, that's really not the best term for it. Cross-sectional applies when you take like the stock market and chop it up in quintiles. quintiles. So I, I look at it in terms of uh, assets, you know, different assets uh, looking at relative strength, which is a really old concept. And uh, what I found was after I read all the research on taking place in the 90s, I was impressed, you know, because uh, first of all, when Dagadish and Pittman came with their research, uh, they were just validating what had already been shown by Cowles and Jones in 1987. So that was a big out of sample uh, test to it. And then because efficient market ideas were still prevalent, people wanted to disprove momentum. So they looked at it in all different ways, different assets and different time frame, and it held up, you know, all all the way and everything. So I figured, well, there's something there, but maybe it's not being exploited the best way in the marketplace because people have a tendency to just focus on uh, individual stocks. That's what the academic side focuses on in terms of their research, especially. So I took a look and I I looked at momentum. Uh, this was my first momentum research paper. I compared the results of applying momentum to individual stocks, to uh, styles, to industries, and to geographically diversified stock indices. And I found geographically diversified indices best results. And then a few years later, Gexky and Sabinov did a more extensive paper. They took a research all the way back to the year 1800, and they came to the same conclusion. Um, but then I also thought, well, uh, I kind of stumbled upon the absolute momentum idea, which people call that time series, but all momentum is based on time series for absolute to relative. Uh, but absolute momentum, I stumbled upon because I just used some very short-term bonds as alternatives. So what that means is, you know, if the excess return of whatever asset I'm looking at is negative, you just go into short-term bond instead. So that's basically what time series or absolute is. And then I thought, well, let's separate it out, you know, specifically into those two components. And that my next research paper did that. That's where I came up with. You, you mentioned that you also looked at momentum on industries. Um, was did that work at all, or was it was it just that it worked better on indices than than in, uh, on industries, or you know how how did what did you find in terms of how it worked on industries? It works on pretty much everything, you know, in fixed income, currencies, industries, uh, whatever. But um, the, and in fact, I put industries in my book that was written in 2014 because my data went back uh, to the early 19s. 70s, I believe. Um, and then when I got more data all the way back, you know, for another 20 years further, I saw that it, it didn't work as well with industries as, as I initially thought. That's why it's really important to have as much data as possible. Um, and still, applying it to diversified geographic stock indices worked better than industries or anything else. 
One of the points you highlighted in your uh, your dual momentum paper was this idea that you know if, if you use momentum on multi-asset strategies, a lot of times you can end up with a bunch of assets that are correlated with each other. And, and in your paper, you talked about using this module-based approach to address this. And I'm wondering if you could talk maybe a little bit about what you did. Well, this was, was in my second paper. And what I did was I, I said, okay, let me show that momentum is robust, that it works with everything. So I took U.S. and non-U.S. stocks and created a module. And then I took um, different bond sectors and created a module. And I took REITs and mortgage uh, REITs. And then I had one with uh, gold and long-term treasuries. And I was able to show that momentum works uh, with all of these. But it tends to work the best uh, when you're applying it to stock indices. And I, I think that's because uh, that really has the best risk premium available that people have been able to validate long in terms of absolute momentum, you know, when you look out in the industry, what, what you see probably most used with absolute momentum is this idea of moving averages. Um, you know, if the, if the asset goes below the 200 day, I sell or something like that. You used a very different approach, you know, in, in your work in terms of looking at it relative performance, relative to a risk-free rate. I wonder if you could talk about what you did and maybe com compare and contrast that with more of a moving average based approach. Uh, I look at a risk-free rate just to get an absolute return because if you're going to get the same return from T-bills, why bear any risk at all? So you want to use that as a hurdle rate. And then I, I say, okay, uh, has, has it gone up or down? You know, it's a rate of change, certain look back. And that's what absolute. Is. Now, it's not all that much different from moving averages. You get very similar results. But I found that uh, absolute momentum gives somewhat better results. Uh, Valerie Zakamulin has a book called Market Timing with Moving Averages. And he has something online people could use called In Sample Test of Moving Average Trading Rules. And you can go in and compare uh, absolute momentum to uh, simple moving averages. And you can validate that for yourself. Also, there's uh, some software available on the internet program called Portfolio Visualizer. Uh, parts of it you can use for free and see the same thing. Yeah, we love portfolio visualizer. We've used that in a lot of a lot of the different things we've done. Um, for for relative momentum, um, you know, you mentioned relative strength before, which is a good, you know, which is a commonly used approach. Um, a lot of the academic research prefers to use twelve minus one momentum to get rid of the most recent month. In terms of relative momentum, what what do you think the best measures are? Well, twelve minus one is a a little bit um, misleading in some ways because when um, Jagadish and Tipman did it. They actually used, they skipped the last week, which makes more sense because uh, stocks tend to be mean reverting uh, over shorter periods of time, days or two weeks. But that, once you get up to a month and longer, then uh, momentum kicks in, especially over three months. Uh, so people use, would skip the last month just because they had monthly data. They didn't have a daily or uh, and that really is a phenomenon of stocks with the, them being short-term being reverting. You get into other assets, then even skipping the last week uh, may not make so much sense. So in terms of look-back periods, what time frame you're evaluating over, uh, 12 months is used a lot in the academic side. Uh, it tends to uh, give fewer trades, 
and uh, the results are, are pretty strong. Uh, but Jagadish and Tittman showed anywhere from three to 12 months. Individual stocks is pretty good. And some assets, uh, you know, respond better with shorter look backs and others with uh, somewhat longer. We had, we had Corey Hofstein on the podcast a while back, and, you know, one of the things he talked about is, is he tries to use a lot of measures, you know, to eliminate the risk that any specific measure will be the one that's wrong at any given time. What do you think about that? Do you, do you think that's necessary, or, or do you think you can get away with using, you know, more specific measures and not have to worry about that? Well, rather than take a, a naive kind of shotgun approach, just throw everything, you can have a more nuanced approach. What we do is uh, we have different modules with different look back periods and we can suit the asset to the module because like bonds, for example, respond than stocks do. So I think that makes more sense. Um, also, look backs can be conditional on uh, volatility or uh, market environment, things like that. So that's what we use in our proprietary. We try to take it beyond just a, a naive, uh, shotgun approach of throwing everything. That makes sense. Can you, you talked about a little bit about this earlier, but can you talk about now that we've talked about what absolute momentum is and what relative momentum is, can you talk a little bit about how you bring those two together into dual momentum? Sure. Oh, we, uh, we apply absolute momentum first. We want to see what the trend, for example, uh, the simple model I have in my book that anyone can like, uh, we look at uh, whether the S&P 500 has gone up or down over the past year. And if it's uh, gone down, then we move to the safety of intermediate term bonds. Uh, and if it's gone up, then we know we have positive absolute momentum. So then we compare the performance over the past year of U.S. stocks uh, to non-U.S. stocks. We go which, with whichever of those two has been stronger. And we hold it until there's a change. Have you been able to look at if, you know, if you just used the relative momentum system versus adding in the absolute momentum on top, like what are the risk and return characteristics look like, you know, comparing those two different approaches? Well, that's very interesting. Um, and in fact, uh, when I give a presentation, I, I show the relative momentum part first, which is just switching between U.S. and non-U.S. stocks, depending on which has been stronger over the past 12 months. And there's actually... Uh, an increase in return with that strategy of almost 200 basis points. Wow. Just doing that. And how many money managers do you know who would be delighted to show, you know, 200 bips uh, in excess in extra return every year doing something this simple? And uh, you're always fully invested. There's very little tracking error. Uh, so it, I've always wondered why institutional money managers who have uh, a mission of always being fully invested aren't doing something. And the only thing I could think of is, uh, uh, you know, home country bias, which is very strong throughout the world. They don't want to be 100% outside of the U.S. market. Now, when you take an, and you overlay absolute momentum, uh, you can get... Uh, twice the increase in return. So instead of 200 uh, bips over the long run, backtesting is shown back to 50, that we're looking at about 400 bips. 
by by doing both together. In addition, you drop the the maximum drawdowns to less than half, what you would get from this being interesting. Yeah, and you know, uh, one of the reasons that a lot of money managers probably don't use it is because it's you know they they want to act like they're adding value and it's not something that's you know it's something that's so simple that they probably want to show to their clients that they have some sort of more complicated system they could run despite the better returns of it. That's very true. There is a, a bias against simplicity, which is ironic because uh, usually simpler is. We use some absolute momentum uh, systems ourselves, and you know, I want to ask you about one of the challenges we face to see what you think about it. You know, one of the challenges we've faced in running money is, you know, I don't know if you've heard Jim O'Shaughnessy talk about this, but he talks about the two points of failure for investors. And one point of failure is when the market's down, investors will sell at the wrong time. The other point of failure is when they're underperforming the market, they'll sell at the wrong time. Yes. And, you know, that, that's the big challenge we've had with our trend following systems is, you know, a lot of times we think the second point of failure can be worse than the first. You know, if you're doing worse than your neighbor, in a lot of ways, that's worse than losing money. And so I'm wondering, have you found that as well? And, and do you think there's anything that could be done maybe to address that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're right that the second one is more certainly more prevalent than the first. Um, and uh, Greg Fisher once said, we don't have uh, people with investment problems. We have investments with people problems. <laughs> I think that's very true. So the only solution I found is to try to keep educating people uh, because, you know, they tend to forget. They tend to get very myopic and uh, just look at what's going on recently and they don't keep the big picture in mind. So I discourage people from looking at performance too much. And I, I encourage them to uh, study the research and try to keep the principles in mind. And the fact that, you know, if something has worked over uh, 50 years or in the case of momentum, uh, 100 or 200 years or even longer, that you got to give that the benefit of the doubt. The worst thing people do is, is, you know, switch from thing to thing. <laughs> And that, hap that happens a lot. Even in the pension world, you have pension fund consultants uh, typically look at the last three years of performance and make suggestions, and clients would be better off not following those suggestions. It's funny to that point, you know, there's, you're probably familiar with the permanent portfolio mutual fund and, you know, the permanent portfolio mutual fund, which uses gold bonds and stocks, it always has the most massive inflows basically at the bottom. So once the market is basically completely collapsed, everybody is de-risking and going into it. And now, you know, when we have a big market run, everybody's taking their assets out of it. So it goes to your point that, you know, people are always abandoning these systems at the wrong time and going, to the, going into the other systems at the wrong time. Right. Um, I want to ask you, in reading one of your papers, one of the interesting things I found is you, you had, had actually applied momentum to fixed income, which is not something you see done too often. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you did that and maybe what types of assets you, you had in the mix that you were evaluating from that perspective. Yes, momentum works really well with fixed income. You just have to uh, modify your look because bonds tend to uh, uh, move in a different way than stocks do. So what we do is um, I have two main uh, dual momentum models. And what they do is uh, when we're out of the stock market, we'll look at different uh, intermediate and shorter term sectors of the bond market, everything from T-bills and tips, um, seven to 10 year treasuries, and we'll, we'll use relative strength to determine where we want to be. I also have a dedicated fixed income model, and that adds uh, high yield bonds. Uh, we don't need high yield bonds in our other ones because we have equities, so we capture the equity that way. But 
if we have a standalone uh, bond model that I do. And how have you felt in, in terms of rebalancing periods for absolute and relative momentum when you run your strategies? How do you think about that? I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of, some people want to rebalance monthly just to, you know, always have the best momentum in their portfolio, but you have the issue of turnover and transaction costs and then others maybe use longer periods. So what have you found works best in terms of rebalancing periods? For um, two of the three uh, models I use monthly, and then I have another one where I'm able to uh, actually utilize daily data. And I found that uh, rebalancing, well, it's a proprietary model, I can't details, but it rebalances a little more frequently. You've done some uh, research and testing around uh, what time of the month it might be best to rebalance. Um, what has your, what have you uncovered there? Are, is there a better time or does it really, could it be the end of the month or what's the, your research show? The end of the month, uh, first couple of days of the next month, those tend to be the best times for rebalancing momentum. Uh, the reason being that institutions are evening up their portfolios at that time, so you get uh, fairer prices. But I, it, I'm just basing that on the data. You know, we've gone through and we looked day by day, what's the best time? So, uh, sometimes, uh, with some models, you know, uh, the model itself dominates the time. So I have one model, uh, that uses market structure and it'll re you know, it'll make a change on whatever that happens. It doesn't have to wait until the month. Or have you, is there in the main model, is there a main drop off in performance when you go from monthly to something like maybe quarterly? I, yes, from what I recall, uh, there mm -hmm. is, I've looked at quarterly, I looked at bi-monthly, monthly, weekly, all different time frames. And, uh, the, 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 you have to reach a balance. If you rebalance too frequently, you know, you'll just get whipsawed, allow the markets to, um, and if you wait too long, then you're, you're just not sensitive to what's going. Yeah, that's sort of one of the criticisms with momentum strategies is, um, you know, a lot of the excess performance can be eaten up by transaction costs or indirect costs or slippage or, you know, things that happen when you trade a lot. Um, I guess with indexes, you know, there's no, there's, there's, you know, you're trading things that are very, very liquid. So you're probably avoiding any of that, but what do you think about this criticism of momentum strategy is not working after, um, transactions are taken into account. Well, that has, has, that has to apply, uh, that applies to, uh, stocks, individual stocks, because they tend to be momentum, uh, stocks tend to be very volatile and, uh, they have wider bid ask spreads and there's also really high turnover. So, uh, that's a problem. Academic paper, there've been a number showing that uh, that can be an issue. Uh, but when you're dealing with indices, it's 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 not a problem. They don't have the same uh, wide bid ask. It's a usually don't have the same kind of turn. on a stock portfolio. You might turn over 25, 30% of it every time. Have you ever tested or looked at incorporating other asset classes, things like commodities, gold? 
Um, other asset classes that might not be necessarily correlated with equities. Have you done any research around that? Oh, sir. And in fact, uh, in, uh, both of our momentum models or, or proprietary models, we use, we use commodities. Uh, one of them uses gold. In fact, that's pretty much what they're in right now is, uh, commodities, uh, gold, uh, tips and cash. Yeah, we, um, we run a few strategies based on research papers, um, protective asset allocation and generalized protective momentum. Are you familiar with those? Yes. So similar type of, our models are sort of, have, have been de-risking too and moving into those areas. So, um, and that's one thing I want to ask you about a, a few minutes here, um, a little bit more on that, uh, but, uh, one of the other sort of sticking with this momentum theme, um, one, one thing we've seen in the market, when we think back, maybe, I mean, not the, not it's, it's, it's post-financial crisis, but 2015, 2018, 2020, um, and we'll see about the period we're in now, but you know, those other three periods in the market. So 2015, 2018, 2020, you know, we saw pretty large declines and then, you know, very quick bounces, um, once the market bottomed. So they're sort of sharper declines. They seem like, and they're, they seem to be, have followed by quicker recoveries. And maybe that's because we weren't necessarily, you know, really going into a true bear market in those periods for a whole host of reasons we could probably discuss. But I'm just wondering when you sort of think about what's been happening in the market, do you think that that sure should change the look back period that's being utilized in some of these momentum strategies in any way? Yes, absolutely. We, we, that's why we switched to a module approach in our, uh, our largest, uh, momentum model, uh, so that we can use uh, different look back periods and have a balance of them. Uh, and a, a year or so ago, uh, there was a paper out called, uh, breaking bad, breaking bad trends, something like that, a Cam Harvey and his people put out, which they showed the same thing. The markets tend to uh, change more now. Uh, they tend to have uh, more uh, swings going on. And so uh, you're better off having different look back periods, shorter and longer ones. Another way to do that is to make uh, you look back conditional on market, what the markets are. That's something I've done for quite a while. I just wanted to get your thoughts on, um, the, the idea of using momentum and combining it with value or quality. Now this wouldn't necessarily, cause you're using indexes. It doesn't, well, you could get a value index or a quality index. There are indexes that exist that hold stocks with those types of characteristics, but this is, I guess, more so on the stock selection side, the people that are combining momentum and value, let's say, but do you have any thoughts or opinions on whether combining momentum with something that's uncorrelated to it can help improve, um, a strategy's risk-adjusted returns when combined together. I've tried using, uh, those, those different areas within the framework, and I haven't found quality or value to add anything. I found some other factors that are part of the proprietary that have been useful. Um, 
And like I say, it it's it can be good to have uh, alternative approaches. Uh, one of my models, as I mentioned, uses market structure in addition to momentum. So that has value. But as far as using things like value and quality, I think that really helps. Um, can you just shake out what you mean by using market structure when you're explaining that and how that actually works? Well, it's, it's based on price action, you know, uh, how prices, you know, reach certain levels, uh, where they are expected to, uh, indicate a change in trend and, uh, that doesn't depend on time. It depends on price. So that's what I mean. Price action and market structure. Right. Okay. Um, I wanted to, given the declines we've seen so far this year, um, and you've already kind of hinted towards this, you know, your proprietary model has kind of de-risked and moved into some of these asset classes that are uncorrelated with equities, but, um, uh, are, are you, are we getting now close to, um, being ne negative on like the absolute with the U S market. Cause I'm thinking like last year, the, the returns were pretty much all front loaded. They were all at the beginning of the year. So since like, you know, maybe April of last year, the market hasn't really done too, too much. And now we're, we're down 10% for the year, maybe a little bit less than that after today. So at some point here, pretty soon, you know, we're going to be below the risk-free rate and that would basically be a sell. And maybe we're already there. I don't know. I'm asking, um, how close are we to that sort of negative return on us markets, given the way that you look at, um, looking at these indexes through your momentum strategy. Depends on your look back period. Uh, if you're using a six month look back period, would have gotten out right. recently. If you're looking at 12 month, uh, you may have to, uh, go through a lot more downside mm -hmm. before you're able to get out. That's why, yeah, you know, we, we, we've made our, our models more adaptive. As we get into sort of the last few questions here, I just wanted to, um, ask you this question on us versus international markets. Cause you've had this vantage point of looking at all this market data over a very long period of time. And, and obviously throughout stock market history, you have periods when us has done much better than international. That's pretty much been like the last since the financial crisis, probably us has done a lot better than non us stocks. And then, you know, from 2000 to 06 international was maybe even further than that, 2009 international was, um, more so the place to be pre great financial crisis. So just, I'm wondering because you have that and you've looked at so much of this historical data, what are your thoughts on, and I'm kind of asking you to make a, a, a prediction here, which I personally don't love predictions, but I'm just more interested in your, in your perspective on, do you think that, you know, international stocks are, are set to outperform us stocks given the massive outperformance we've seen in the U S versus international. Well, I'll have to get up my crystal ball here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, you never know when you might need it. So I, I have, I have no idea. Nice. I just follow the market action. See what the market has to say. People can make that case based on valuation and say, well, Value looks pretty good. Or looks good. 
States compared to the U.S. on a population basis. But that's not such a good way to time what you do. It just means over the next 10 years, you might be looking lower or higher returns. So I, I just I just follow the markets. I don't try to predict what's going to happen. Yep, love that. Stick to your discipline and, and uh, core competency. Um, I wanted to switch gears uh, and ask you about this paper you wrote on trend following um, with Bitcoin and um, sort of what your findings were in that paper. And, you know, talk a little bit about applying trend following to a higher volatility asset like Bitcoin? Well, it, I, I started doing that in 2017. I, I took a dual momentum approach, looked at a whole bunch of uh, cryptocurrencies, absolute and relative. I did pretty well that year, but I think anybody in crypto. And then uh, was a side after that because the trends were going down. And then, uh, I just decided, you know, when crypto, when Bitcoin got so cheap, uh, that I, I just buy some and hold it went up eight folds That changed my mind on what, you know, I have to manage that. So, uh, that's when I took a look at creating a simpler, uh, trend firing model. And, uh, the key to that is, uh, instead of looking at monthly or weekly, even weekly, uh, you have to look at daily. Bitcoin is so volatile. So basically, I just took a simple trend following approach that's uh, worked, you know, since the 1950s or earlier, and works on lots of different markets. That's something I always look for is longevity uh, on something that, you know, nothing that you just fit, come up with and fit the day, something that's been proven uh, to work successful uh, over long periods of time. And that's, that's what I applied a bit. What, what was the result of that in terms of the performance versus just hold, holding the asset? I'm guessing you, the losses would have been much less. <laughs> much less. Uh, I think the max drawdown, uh, on a trade ending trade basis for Ethereum was 25%, it's about 16%, uh, over 80% winning trades, uh, Ethereum's had the same CAGR as buy and hold, uh, Bitcoin's been 70%. So the back test results, so hmm. uh, last, uh, year and a half has been out of sound. Stuff. And in addition to using daily data, did you also have to speed up the signals with Bitcoin? So, I mean, I would assume something like trying to wait for breaks of the 200 day moving average or something probably wouldn't work with Bitcoin because it moves so fast. Yeah. Did, did you have to speed up your signals as well? Yes. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, there are ways not to have a lot of trades. You know, I look for confirmation, uh, with th those two markets, similar to Dow theory, where I want to see them both go in the same direction. Just this last one question that popped in my head before we, um, get to the standard closing question, but what do you think of this idea of, uh, asymmetric like timing signals. So like, for example, you know, maybe the sell is you close below the 200 day, but you're buying, if you close above the 50 day, I'm thinking like, you know, to try to give you, to try to help against like whipsawing and, um, 
so you're, you're, you're giving yourself more sort of to the downside because most correction, I'm just thinking of the U S market, most corrections don't turn into bear markets. So if you sold every single correction, you know, you'd be kind of in trouble from a performance standpoint, but you want to make sure that you're selling before the, obviously the worst, the very worst of the bear market. But then, you know, at the bottom of the bear market, you want to be in pretty quickly because that's where some of the, you know, best returns can come from. So I'm just curious if you could comment on that, the idea of something like that. Well, it, it sounds good in theory, but the, the problem is an implementation because let's say you get out and you switch your time period. What do you do? Locked in for a longer time? It may not make a lot of sense logically to do that. Um, so I, what I think makes more sense is just to identify what market regime that you adapt a look back period that's suitable. And okay. Yep. That makes sense. Okay. So for the standard closing question, we wanted to ask you based on your experience and the research that you've done, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? Uh, that would be kind of along the lines of, uh, I heard this from someone describing a philosophy of life, um, uh, in terms of their life's journey, that would be, uh, investigate carefully, choose widely, wisely and follow faithfully. So I'd say the same thing applies to investing, do your homework, you know, do as much research as you can to satisfy yourself that what you have makes sense, that it's uh, something that you could stick with, and not lose confidence in. Go with it. Don't be shy. You know, I get, I come across people all the time who say, well, I just want to stick my toe in the water, see how it, how it does for six months. And that's not the right attitude. You know, anything could happen six months or a year, two years, whatever. What you need to do is do your homework, do the research, be sure that what you have makes a lot of sense, then commit to it and then stick with it until you have some good reason for changing. Great. If people want to learn more about you, um, the research you're working on, following you on Twitter, where can they go? What's your tw Twitter handle? The Twitter handle is just my name. Uh, I have a website called uh, optimalmentum.com. There's a link to my blog. And then I have a book that explains the basics of an approach to a momentum investing. So it's one of the best selling investment books. We'll put a link to all that stuff in the show notes. This has been great. Gary, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it. And um, hope to have you back on maybe in the future to talk more momentum. Take care. Thanks a lot, Justin. Hey guys, this is Justin. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting, please like us on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.